The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So we're in 1 Timothy 4 and verses 12 through 16, the verses that were just read for us. And in today's passage, what God will teach us is the connection between the leader's character and the character of those whom the leader influences. Or the connection between the leader's outcome in terms of where the leader's life leads and the way the those that the leader influences, their life outcome and where their life goes as well. We might call that a role model. And we should note that in our current American culture, character among leaders has essentially fallen off the map. Let's think about that in three domains. Let's start with the domain of politics. Whatever your political leanings are, I don't really care. I'm just giving examples from every party so everybody feels included. If you're a Bill Clinton guy or a Donald Trump guy or if you're a British Anglophile and you're a Boris Johnson guy, all three of those leaders are not exactly known for Christ-like character and you would rightly be concerned about what you might learn from them. But their defenders are normally quick to point out that character is irrelevant to what they're doing. They'll often say something like, well, we're not really electing a choir boy. We're just trying to get someone who will achieve certain results, which normally, frankly, have to do with more money being being made. So politics, let's take another arena. How about business leaders? Again, business leaders are normally not in our country chosen based on their character. Whether or not Steve Jobs is faithful to his wife or faithful to his family is not something his shareholders particularly care about. They want to know if the golden goose will keep making more money. Will he have outcomes that they want achieved? Or let's think about the world of sports. I love basketball. I love the NBA, and I've enjoyed watching it for years. But I have to admit, there's not normally a huge abundance of character among those who play very well. Magic Johnson was an incredibly good basketball player, and so was Wilt Chamberlain, neither of whom are men that you'd want to think about in terms of character as Christ-like. But again, their teams, their owners don't really care. They want them to achieve a desired outcome. We might refer to that philosophy as pragmatism, the idea that if I can achieve the outcome I want, the process through which I get there is irrelevant or unimportant. But what this passage and really the whole Bible will remind us of is that God is not a pragmatist. God is not concerned only with the outcome. God is very concerned with the journey, with the process. And character is something that the scriptures tell us repeatedly will have a connection between those who lead and those who are impacted by them. The outcomes in the life of the leader and the outcome in the life of those they impact. And so I love passages like today because they're refreshingly countercultural. They're so different from the way our country works. So leaders in God's economy are to actually have character that can influence those they lead to a good outcome. Now, their character is not perfect. We'll see in today's passage, verse 15, their character is in progress. So it's not perfection, but progress, but yet it should genuinely help those who are influenced. So before you think, well, this sermon may not directly apply to me, let's 
kind of tease out why it will actually. First, most directly, this refers to the life of the church. And in the life of the church, leaders are to set the believers an example, meaning that it's important that we know what kind of leaders we ought to have, and it's important that we're able to follow their example if it's the right example. There's another reason, though, this text is applicable to all of us, and that's because all of us lead or impact somebody else. In our home life, in our work life, in our neighborhood, as a coach, we impact others. And all of us are being influenced by others. All of us have people that are influencing us. Therefore, the truth in this passage will apply to everywhere. But now if you have the bulletin, here's the first point, number one, directly related to the church. Church don't value age or experience over Christ-likeness. And the title of today's sermon is Why Christ-Likeness Matters for Leading. Look with me in God's Word in verse 12 of First Timothy 4. Paul, writing especially to Timothy, writes, Let no one despise you for your youth. And this is where grammar actually makes a big difference. At this point, Paul is not addressing Timothy. The no one is addressing his hearers. So just to be very, very clear, Paul is not actually telling Timothy, Timothy, you should not despise your youth. He's telling his listeners, listeners, you should not despise Timothy's youth. The listeners should not value the wrong thing. So the church, in this case, or people who are influenced, which is all of us, should not use worldly values by which to assess our leaders. We should value the things that God values, which are going to be given in the remainder of verse 12. But first, we'll just notice that we could make a mistake of confusing age or experience with Christlikeness. This could be a danger at any time. In God's grace in church history, this matters had to be considered repeatedly. Jonathan Edwards uh, was only 23 years old when he started pastoring the largest church in New England, in Northampton, Massachusetts. Charles Spurgeon was 17 by the time he started pastoring. When he started pastoring New Park Chapel, which became Metropolitan Tabernacle, it was he was 19 years old. It was the largest church in the Western Hemisphere. By the time he was 20, he had preached over 600 sermons. If you want to do recent history, John Piper was 34 when he was called to pastor Bethlehem, of which he just recently passed the pastorate on. John MacArthur was 30 when he started pastoring in Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. The scriptures actually tell us to not make this mistake. In Ecclesiastes 4, verse 13, the Bible says this, better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who can no longer take advice. Now, in the biblical era, being a king was literally the best thing you could be. You had all power, you had all position, but this poor person who doesn't have means and who has youth is actually better because he has wisdom. He'll take advice. In the Bible, of course, David is the youngest of all of his brothers, and yet he's the one that God has chosen. Why? Because unlike us, God does not look on the outside, but he looks on the, on the, on the heart. So character is actually a very, very important thing. Now, to, to be fair, this should not be weaponized as if to say, um, overlook the fact that I'm young. D.A. Carson learned this the hard way. He was pastoring when he, he was young and he was in Canada. And at the end of every sermon, there was a particular lady in the congregation who would meet him in the back and she would say, that was a great sermon. 
but you're so young. And so he would do that again. And the next week, and she did this literally for months and months and months. And he finally just had a moment of the flesh. And he looked at her and he quoted First Timothy 4.12 and said, the Bible says, let no one despise you for your youth. So she never said that again. But he, he didn't learn that the passage goes on to say, but set them an example in speech and conduct and faith and love and impurity. So the passage is speaking to us all. We, as those who are influenced, need to be careful to not choose those who influence us based on worldly assessments. But we who are influencing need to be careful that we understand that over time we must exhibit Christ-like character. And that is the thing that God will use to give credibility to our influence. So that leads us to number two on your handout. Number two, leaders set the believers an example in Christ-likeness. And that's how verse 12 continues. So let no one despise you for your youth, but the verse continues, set the believers an example. Setting an example means that though leaders are imperfect, they must genuinely be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Or be imitators of God and imitators of me. Or you've seen my manner of life. Leaders should be able to see this because character is a huge part of the impact of a good leader. The text actually gives particular categories in which the leaders need to set believers an example, which means we all want to grow in these categories, but hopefully leaders can be mile markers on the way. And the first category is speech. Speech is a term that not only refers to what you say, but also what you text or what you type or what you write. All forms of communication fall under this category. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, to all of us as Christians, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for the hearer, for its building up, for the edification. So God tells us in our words whether they're typed or texted or written, to be careful. Proverbs is probably the strongest book in the Bible on speech. Here's some Proverbs. When words are many, sin is not absent. That's 10.19. He who answers a matter before hearing it, it is shame and folly to him. That's Proverbs 18.13. The mouth of a fool feeds on folly. 15.14. The heart of the righteous weighs its answer, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil, 15.28. The lips of the righteous know what is fitting, 10.32. He who guards his lips guards his life, 10 or 13.3. So in speech, it's vital that we see the value of character. But secondly, in conduct. Conduct is your way of life. This is so important because in the Bible, there's not supposed to be a hypocritical duplicity between one's teaching and one's life. Paul was able to say this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. You have seen my, heard my teaching and followed my conduct or way of life. Paul presented them as connected realities, both instruction and imitation. So conduct refers to our character, our living. So speech and conduct are things that are external, but the next three categories are internal things. Even one's internal heart, our love, our faith, our purity. Love in the Bible is when 
you put something above something else. So love is what you care most about. Love is what you will sacrifice for. Love is what you will forego free time, personal resources, and ease for, for the good of someone else. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. We've concluded this, that since one has died for all, all have died that we may no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. The fourth category is faith. Faith is our ground of trust. Faith is our security. Faith is where we put our hope. Hebrews tells us beautifully in chapter 12, verse 3, we're to consider Him, we're to trust Him who endured hostility from sinners so that we may not grow faint-hearted to look to Christ. The fifth category is purity. Purity is moral cleanness. 1 John 5 tells us that we should look to Christ and know that we'll be with Him one day because everyone who hopes such a way therefore purifies himself in this life. 1 John 3, verse 3. So Christian leaders are to simply model the transforming grace of Christ in our character. To be clear, this is only grace-enabled. This cannot happen through grit. Ephesians 5 tells us in verse 1, be imitators of God and walk in love. How? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So it's only grace that can make this kind of fruit flow. It's guarded by grace. Hebrews 10 verse 14, by a single offering, Christ has perfected those who are being sanctified. So it is secured and guarded by grace, but it's also fueled by love. Galatians 2, I'm crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this love that you've received becomes the love that motivates this transformation. And leaders are to model it, not by human grit, but by the grace of God. And now in verses 13 through 16, we see the centrality of the word. So number three on your handout, leaders must keep central the ministry of the word. And at whatever level you're influencing others, this is vital. Now let's remember the historic situation here. We just read in chapter 3, 14 through 15 recently that these things are written so that we'll know how we ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. But what's happening historically here, remember? Paul has been traveling with Timothy for some time. They've become used to being partners in the mission. But in chapter 1, verse 3, we read that Paul left Timothy. He it sounds like kind of coerced Timothy to stay and to go to Ephesus to deal with all these problems here. Now, to be fair, we're only listening to one side of the conversation, but it does seem like the conversation might have gone something like this on the boat. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, I want you to go to Ephesus. Timothy says, I want to stay with you. I'm having a good time watching and observing all the things you're doing, and I like the support role I'm in. And Paul says, no, I need you to go there. And Timothy says, but Ephesus is a mess. And Paul says, that's why I need you to go to go there. And so what we read in chapter 1 and chapter 4 is that false teachers have come over and the church is losing its rudder. And this is Paul now reminding Timothy and through him all of us, especially those of us who are responsible to teach and minister the Word, that the thing that he must focus on the most is the ministry of the Word. So look in verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading 
of Scripture. Just a quick translation note. If you have a King James in front of you, it says give attendance to reading. But there's an article that's a definite, well-known article, which is why it's translated correctly, give attendance to the public reading of Scripture. So give attendance to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation or preaching, if you have an NIV, which I think preaching is probably better here, and to teaching. So notice the main thing Paul wants Timothy to have down is the ministry of the Word. Why? Because the Word of God does the work of God. And so let me press this passage out for what it means for me and what it means for you, what it means for us both. Pastors, leaders must be all about the Word of God. It's public reading, it's preaching, and it's teaching. This must be the main thing on our heart and the main thing on our mind. It must be the main energy of our week, the main use of our time, the main use of our heart's free time. When we imagine things, when we have mental places we should go, the Word should be the thing that's constantly interwoven. Because he's talking about what happens in the church, this affects all of us. We would expect, though, that the pastor's primary heart is the ministry of the Word. Let me talk about how that can affect you as listeners. I remember when God was first getting a hold of my heart and I was really growing in my love for Him and His Word. By His grace, I was working at Granger in South Carolina. And at Granger's distribution center, I would get oil and, and just all this dirt on me throughout the day. And, and I, but I was at this point where God was so changing my heart that I loved to hear the Bible. And so I would come on Wednesday night at seven o'clock to uh, a church in Simpsonville, South Carolina. And I had grease and I had mud and I had holes in my shirts and my shorts, but thankfully no one told me I couldn't be there. And I loved sitting because the pastor would explain line by line the book of Ephesus. And I had never heard, or the book of Ephesians, I never heard anybody explain the Bible line by line before. It was amazing. It was amazing. I'd heard like story time in the pulpit. I'd heard a lot of that. And I'd seen charismatic, uh, like charisma and charm. I had never heard someone explain the text and it was phenomenal. And I loved being there. So this actually is applicable to all of us in a couple ways. Since God tells us he wants the leaders to be all about the word, one of the ways the church can make sure that happens is actually pushing and encouraging our pastors, our elders, to be all about the word during the week. We actually want them to do that. We want them studying. We want them praying. We want them preparing. We want them learning. We want them being sharpened. We expect there are times that they have protected where they're in prayer, where they're on their knees, where they're studying, where they're learning. We don't look at that as a waste of time, but as very, very important. I don't want you to think I'm just adding that. So look in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, so that you see how he expects all pastor leaders to be about this, especially those who are up teaching the church. Look in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy. What does it mean to rule well if you're an elder? Worthy of double honor? And now the text will explain, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So elders and pastors who are about the Bible... Now, I, I say this not in like defense of myself because I'm really not concerned about all of that. But I, I grew up in a church culture where it was, it was common to joke, what does the pastor do during the week other than golf? <laughs> it was sort of the culture. 
But it's vital to understand that there's this grueling diligence of mining the truths of Scripture that take considerable effort, and we want pastors to be about that. The text will show us why we want them to be about that. But it will first mean that we have to long for it. Hebrews 5 tells us that the author wanted to give them meat, but he had to keep giving them milk. He wanted to give them meat, but he had to keep giving them milk. And so there's there's no question that the ability for the teaching to be what it ought to be actually requires all of us to have the appetite we ought to have, which can take time. But when that appetite comes, the truth can really be on mind. All right, it said public reading, right? And chapter 3 said this is for the instruction of the whole church. So why does God want His Word read when the church gathers? Maybe you've never thought about this. Let me say something that maybe if you've never thought about it, it could blow your whole mind. It could be paradigm shattering for you. Did you know that when we gather on Sundays, we don't make up what we're going to do? It's not like we have an hour and during the week think, what would really be effective this week to fill that hour? No, God actually tells us in the Word exactly the things we're to do when we gather. And let me tell you how bad it is when we don't do those. I was once in Naperville, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, and I was invited to um, a friend's church. And I got there on Sunday. It was one of those really, really big church, like thousands of people there. And we got there, and I was thinking, this is great. You know, we're at church. And we got there, and there were a couple of songs that were pretty vague. And then in the middle, the main part of the gathering, there was an interpretive dance group that got on stage. And the interpretive dance group danced for about 30 or 35 minutes, and then it was over. And then when we left, the friends who invited me said, man, I really want you to go meet my pastor. And I thought, what does he do here? (laughs) You know? He doesn't preach, obviously, and he doesn't teach. Maybe he thinks he's like a CEO that coordinates events or things like that. But actually, the Bible tells us what we do when we gather. Did you know God wants the church to open the Bible every Sunday? Um, that's why, by the way, we read the Bible publicly, not because we just thought that's a good idea, but because God says, read the Bible publicly. So we read the Bible publicly. We preach the Bible because the Word of God does the work of God, and God has told us what the church is to do. See, the the focus of gathered worship ought to be God speaks, we hear. We sing the Word, hopefully. We pray the Word, hopefully. We see the Word in the ordinances. The Word is, excuse me, the Word is read, and hopefully also the Word is preached. So now the verses that follow, he'll stress why the word ministry is so vital. So this is on your handout. Uh, We're at letter A and now letter B underneath number three. Letter B, don't neglect God's gift of word ministry. So look with me in God's word in verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have. Now, again, at this point, you could think, well, Paul's only talking to Timothy I don't see how this is applicable to me. But remember, 1 Peter 4 says each one of us has at least a gift from God's Spirit. And notice, brother, sister, it is possible for us to neglect that gift. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy verse 1, chapter 1, verse 6, fan into flame the gift of God. Fan into flame. That means your gift can atrophy or it can strengthen. 
How does it atrophy? Through neglect. How does it strengthen? Through use. If you have the gift of encouragement, encourage. If you have the gift of service, serve. If you have the gift of exhortation, exhort. Whatever it is, use it and it will strengthen. Shelf it and it will diminish. So he's reminding Timothy, this must not be neglected. Now notice verse 14 goes on to say more. There was prophecy involved and that the revelation was given that Timothy, probably referring to the fact that Timothy is recognized as an elder. So the text continues, when the elders laid their hands on you. So the elders are laying their hands to recognize the spiritual gift. We see in the Bible very often the laying out of hands is to recognize someone who is set apart for a particular function or use. To be clear, we cannot impart a spiritual gift. God the Spirit does that. We, through laying on hands, can recognize and praise God for what the Spirit has given. So the church recognized this when the elders put their hands on Timothy. God had given him a gift. He's given all of us a gift that should not be neglected. And now verse 15. Practice these things. These things, of course, in context, refers to that ministry of the Word. But the ESV very unfortunately uses the word practice, which is so tepid, it sounds like something that you don't need to give much attention to. The NET and the NASB translate, take pains. The NIV translates, be diligent. Those are better translations of melatao. Unless by the word practice you're thinking of like a musician who practices hours a day, or an athlete who's sweating for those two-a-day practices, or maybe a soldier who's continuing through boot camp. As long as your mental image is one of incredible, arduous labor, then you're capturing what God is saying here. The leader must diligently, diligently give himself to this work. The verse continues by saying, immerse yourself in. Philip Towner, I think, translates well, live and breathe these things. The ministry of the word is hard work, but for those called to it, they should immerse themselves in it as any one of us should give our life to what God has gifted us to do. But we tend in our culture to talk about what I think I'm gifted at, what I think I'm called at for my own benefit. But notice how the text goes on to say, so that all may see your progress. So the use of the gift is one that actually benefits everyone when you see that person growing in it themselves over time. You see the Word changing them. You see the Word giving them humility they didn't have, giving them wisdom they didn't have, giving them patience they didn't have, giving them gentleness they didn't have. You watch over time as they change. There's a phrase I use at home that uh, will hopefully explain why passages like this are so important. I, I often tell Steph, yeah, that's why God gave us pastors, not podcasts. <laughs> and what I mean by that is God actually wants you to see the same person over years of time. Because over years of time, you, you, you realize, oh, they're different than they were than when they started. They've grown spiritually. God's changing them. Maybe God's changing me like that too. And over the years, you start realizing God's really doing a great transformative work. I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I was, and neither are they. God gives pastors for a reason. Itinerant ministers could never do that. And I thank God for evangelists. But when they come in and they have a sermon and they leave, you don't see progress. So when you watch on television, you don't know. You don't see progress. Uh, no one else 
does this. This is why God gives pastors in a church. Also, though, the word progress is encouraging because it means God knows that I, I'm still a work. <laughs> God knows that there's still change that needs to be done. And so, again, the leaders are not perfect. They're progressing. They're changing. And frankly, what happens in a church is we tend to grow off one another. We start to learn one another's language and grow together in greater harmony. Notice then that the leader's progress is inseparably tied to your progress. The leader's outcome is inseparably tied to all of our outcome. We can think of this in the negative illustration that when a leader fails, it really detrimentally hurts everyone. Conversely, though, when leaders grow by grace imperfectly but steadily, everybody else is impacted positively. Now we see that in verse 16. This is letter C on your handout. Watch your life and your teaching for the final salvation of your hearers. And we're going to really slow down on verse 16 because it's the climax of this whole paragraph. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I want to explain this verse slowly because it does unpack the whole passage. Let's first notice how it talks about keeping a close watch on yourself. Now, throughout the passage, we've seen that leaders are to set an example, that they have progress, they need to watch their own character. And this implies that a leader, as he's growing or as she's growing in her area of influence, those who are being influenced by them are, in a sense, kind of following behind. There's a mile marker gap, perhaps, in between them. This is important for us, and I think Abigail Dodds illustrates this really well in her article, When Being Relatable Does Damage. And I want to quote a little bit of what she has to say, because I think it's very timely. She says, if you want to give high praise to another woman, call her relatable. The idea behind being relatable is exactly what you would expect, establishing a point of connection with the person you're talking to. It means identifying with them in some human struggle or circumstance, not being on a pedestal. In a digital world where filters reign and manufactured feeds rule, relatability often feels like an antidote, a way of pulling back the curtain. But then she goes on to say, but there's a dangerous side of relatability. Here's how she illustrates it. Oh, you yell at your kids too? What a relief. Let's have a laugh. So relatable. Oh, you're pouring a glass of wine and telling everyone they're on their own for supper? Me too. I'm so sick of this everyone needs to eat routine. Ha 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 ha. So relatable. Her third quote. Oh, you're binge watching Netflix for the fourth night in a row because you just can't even? Me too. So relatable. See, Abigail's point is that at its best, yes, relatability may have transparent humility, but at its worst, it's a species of manipulation that minimizes sin. The sharing of bad moments is always carefully curated so that it maximizes humor and minimizes consequences. In fact, when we share these stories of relatability, the point is to get people to like us more, not less. Here's how she concludes, and this is so, so great. Abigail writes, When I reflect on the women and men who've had the most acute and lasting influence in my life, it isn't their disarming humor or relatable stories that most influence me. 
In many cases, I couldn't relate to their experiences at all. I can't relate to Betsy Ten Boom's contentment in a concentration camp. I can't relate to Elizabeth Elliot's weathering the loss of a murdered husband while ministering to the ones who murdered him. I can't relate even to John Piper forsaking a television, and that was her pastor. I can barely relate to my own mom's endless service of babysitting at the drop of a hat or my dear friend's unwillingness to go near anything that has even the faintest whiff of gossip. But that lack of typicality, the fact that I can't relate to them, is precisely what calls me away from longing to be normal or relatable into a greater desire for holiness and a greater desire for the God who powers such atypical living. In their set-apartness, these people who are not relatable beckon me to Christ, the ultimate high priest who relates to us in the important ways, but also calls us out of our common relatable sin into his uncommon joyful holiness. I think Abigail's article is spot on, and it reminds us why if it's a challenge to relate to our leaders, that's a good thing. If you find your leaders eminently and immediately relatable, they're probably not influencing you for good. It's that dissonance that shows that, boy, there's something different. This is why he writes, set them an example. There's some dissonance there, but that's vital for our growth. All right, I want to say more from verse 16. So verse 16, first we just focused on keep a close watch on yourself, but now notice The next phrase, keep a close watch on the teaching, or perhaps your translation says on the doctrine, on the set of beliefs that are essential. Now we know, we're in chapter 4 already, so we know that when Paul's talking about the doctrine, he's talking about what we sometimes call the gospel. Remember in chapter 1, he said that there's the faith. And the faith tells us this, that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. He says some people use the law wrongly, but we use it rightly because it points us to a Savior. It points us to our need to be rescued from our sin. This passage really struck me because not only does it say watch the teaching, but notice the next phrase says persist in this, persevere in this. That means if you have to persist in something, it means something's resisting against you persisting in it. My family and I really enjoyed staycation at the end of June. Um, we had several days. We got to kind of check out Raleigh. And on Saturday of our staycation, closing out the month of June, we parked at Dorothea Dix Park, and we got out bikes, and we walked. And we walked to Clyde Cooper's Barbecue because someone told me that was good barbecue here in Raleigh. So as we were walking there, I was so excited for the walk, just ready to get there. And when we got there... Unbeknownst to us, we saw all these bounce houses blown up and all this stuff happening. We were like, what's going on here? And then we realized we had walked into the Pride Festival, not knowing what was going on that day. And honestly, it didn't make me sad to be there. I have family members that are in that kind of a lifestyle. I didn't feel uncomfortable being there. Our kids were on the bounce house, and I figured I'd just talk to people around me. So I was talking to a lady and invited her to vacation Bible school and was happy to do that, happy to get to know some people there. But what I, what I noticed on our way back after we really enjoyed the barbecue and then we're walking through was there were several church booths there. And when I saw the church booths there, I wanted to be careful to not think wrongly of them. So I thought, well, maybe this is a great thing. Maybe they're here 
because they want people to know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one will come to the Father except through Him. And so they're there through winsome love so that people can be saved. So I walked up close enough to their booths to see what their literature said and what their signage said. And I realized, much to my dismay, though sadly not my surprise, that they weren't there to actually love anybody else there and point them to the way, the truth, and the life. But they were actually there for the exact opposite reason, to hate the people there by deceptively lying to them and hastening their condemnation. See, what verse 16 tells us, this is vital, those who lead must persist in the doctrine, in the teaching. Why? Why is it a big deal? Josh, why does it matter if we just capitulate on Scripture? Who cares, right? Look how verse 16 ends. This either saves yourself and those who hear you, or the implication is it does the opposite. Are there not leaders in pulpits who have deceived themselves into thinking they have a relationship with God when they don't? And even worse, they've deceived their hearers. Verse 16 is vital because it tells us the leader must submit himself to Scripture. So therefore, those under his influence also submit to Scripture. Now, there's another thing that's complex here that you might be really wrestling with. Verse 16 says, save yourself. And you're thinking, wait, how does salvation work again? Isn't it like once kind of, and it's over. If this will help you, in the Bible, the word salvation is used as an umbrella term that encompasses the beginning, which we tend to call conversion, the middle, which we might call transformation, and the end, which we might call glorification. In fact, the Bible uses phrases like this. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. First Corinthians 15 puts them all together. It says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you did receive in the past, you stand in, and by which you are being saved. And our passage says, and will be saved. Now that's all of grace. The grace that first calls us is the grace that safely brings us home. But in between the beginning when we're called and the end when we're called home, there are means of grace that God uses us to keep us in the salvation He's given us. And one of the key ones is the ministry of the Word from the leaders you have. Do they watch their own life? Do they watch their own doctrine? Will they be perfect in either of those? No, they won't. But can you see that they're genuinely actually trying to follow Christ? in the way they live and in the way they teach. This is essential for any elder, any pastor, any leader in the church. Joshua understood this very well. Remember, uh, Moses had led them all the way up to the promised land, but he didn't get in, did he? Don't you get it then when Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. See, what Joshua understood is like how I live affects whether or not you make the promised land. The, there's political scientists call this um, universality and particularity. Here's a simple way to explain it. So um, if you're the prime minister of France or something like that, and for years you're thinking about the European Union and how Europe works, well, then suddenly COVID happens and you realize, I have a responsibility to my people. And if I don't take care of France, we're not going to have a good Europe universality, particularity. Last Sunday, we looked in First Timothy 5, and it talked about widows. 
And didn't it say, take care of your own household first, right? Think of people you've met that are like, I, I care about mercy ministry, I care about the vulnerable and the weak, and they don't care for their own parents. Well, we wouldn't have a problem if everybody took care of their own parents, right? So universality only works if particularity happens first. This is why he tells the leader, you watch yourself, you take care of your home, then you can lead the church. You take care of the church before you think about the denomination. So universality is dependent on particularity. It is vital that leaders are being good shepherds where God has placed them. Joshua understood this. So he said, I'm going to take care of my own house so we can all go to the promised land together. Under shepherds are to point to the good shepherds. So today's passage talks about imperfect people who are supposed to lead as best they can. But these imperfect people are just foggy windows that point to the perfect good shepherd. And that good shepherd is the reason there's hope for this passage. Anselm was a church father who lived a thousand years ago, and he told a story about a king. And in that era, everybody had kings, so it makes sense that he would use that illustration. He said there was once a great kingdom. It was ruled by a benevolent and powerful king. And in that kingdom, one day, there was a young boy who was walking, and he decided that he would bring the king a gift. So he started to pick flowers for the king. The boy thought he was doing his best, and indeed he was doing his best, but in reality, everything he was picking were weeds or thorny dead things. They were not, in fact, flowers. When the young boy got to the kingdom and made it to the castle, the king saw him from a ways off, and the king said to his own son, the prince, Son, go to my garden and pick my flowers and exchange them with the boy. So the prince did that. He went to the king's own garden, picked beautiful flowers, and he went to the boy, and one at a time he took every thorny dead thing and gave a beautiful flower. And then the little boy came and stood in front of the king and gave him a beautiful bouquet of the king's own resources. In reality, this is what the gospel is. None of us could ever come before the king and say, my speech and my conduct and my faith and my love and my purity are worthy of entrance and well done. None of us can say that. If we're honest, we know that our speech has things we would hope would not have been recorded. We have conduct that we hope other people don't find out about. We have faith that lacks. We have love that hates. We have purity mixed with impurity. But Christ exchanges our collection of thorns and gives us His beautiful bouquet. A bouquet of righteousness that was already God's to begin with. In today's passage then, you should first hear this if you need to know Christ as good news. If in today's passage, when I went through speech and conduct and love and faith and purity, you felt conviction... I have good news for you. Jesus took the full consequences for failures in every sin category, including those five. Think of, think of them with me for just a second. Speech. When you speak in a way that's harsh or dishonest, over time, what is the natural consequence of that? People don't want to be around you. Did not Jesus feel that consequence when he was deserted? 
If you have conduct that isn't what it ought to be, don't we have laws to deal with people who have conduct that's illegal? Was not Jesus numbered among the transgressors, counted as a criminal, crucified between two crosses? If you lack love, you find yourself rejected. Was not Jesus exiled? Did he not cry out, why hast thou forsaken me? If you lack faith, the Bible says, rather than a solid rock, you're on sinking sand. It's like without faith, you're trusting in the wrong thing and your life crumbles and you feel like you fall. And Jesus cried out and gave up his spirit as he departed seemingly into the depths. If your life is impure, one of the things you always try to do is try to cover it up so no one would ever know of your impurity. Your biggest fear is exposure. But was not Jesus stripped completely, exposed, treated as if he had no covering? See, on the cross, Jesus took the full consequences of all the sin that every one of our thorny weeds deserves. But then he gifts the righteousness that we don't have. And so the good news for you now, if you are a Christian, or what can be yours today, if you'll move your trust to Christ and acknowledge your need, is His life now provides the soil in which that beautiful bouquet of flowers will grow. Your speech can now start to be a little bit more like Christ. Your conduct, your love, your faith, your purity can grow into an aroma of your Savior who has gifted you His beautiful bouquet and has given you the soil for its growth. And the leaders are to bring the Word ministry that helps cause it to grow. Let's go to Him in prayer this morning. Father God, I just acknowledge before You, Lord, I I mean, You know better than I do how often my speech is sinful, how often my conduct is wrong, how often my faith is lacking, how easily I am faint of heart or discouraged. Lord, you know better than I do how often my love is cold or how often my purity is not as vibrant as it ought to be. Lord, I I pray this truly. Um, Grow those things, not only for my own sake, but for the good of Emmanuel, Uh, a church that is patient with a man who is very much in progress. But Lord, I'm very, very thankful, even more so than that, that Jesus Christ is perfect. And thank you, Lord, that He bore on the cross all the things that I deserve to experience, the desertion, the exile, the abandonment, the sinking depths of death, all belong to me. And yet you, in amazing love, allocated them to your son so that you could gift us his righteousness received simply through trust in what he did. Perhaps someone is there today. They they need to look to the cross and say, oh God, forgive me. And Lord, accept me not on my own merit, but on the righteousness of Christ, which clothes me forever. But Lord, I, I also pray that that soil in which we're now planted, where Christ is the vine and we are the branches, would bear fruit to your glory. Because we we can speak more Christ-like than we used to. We can live in a more holy way. And, And our faith and our love and our purity are fruit of the Spirit that can grow and bear greater result.
So Lord, I know in our country, we don't care about character, we care about results. Help us to flip that and to care about character and trust you with the results. So grow your church for your glory, but make sure your name is glorified because the way the church operates actually displays your grace and your goodness. And Lord, may these things be increasingly true everywhere the Word of God is proclaimed. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.